On this episode of the Fieldhouse Files, I'm bringing in a national perspective. I'm joined by Jake Fisher, a senior NBA reporter for Yahoo Sports. And welcome into the Fieldhouse Files, the podcast where I take you behind the scenes with the Pacers, talk to individuals on and around the team, and tell you what you need to know. Well, by this time, the Pacers are now a couple weeks into the season. They're 3-5, and five, and they're even ahead of four other teams in the Eastern Conference. I'd say it's gone kind of as expected. A couple highlight games, uh, them hitting 23 three-pointers in a win the first time in Brooklyn over the weekend, but then losing the next game. Um, and they now have a favorable schedule as well. I think it's interesting this year how the NBA has done the schedule. I, I found certainly with the Pacers, but also across the league, is there's a lot more games and groupings. For example, the Pacers had that weekend series in Brooklyn, but more specifically, like four home games like the Pacers are about to have, then a couple road games, four more home games, and they go out west for a seven-game road trip. I've been on this beat over a decade, and that's easily the longest road trip that this Pacers team has had. Normally, being in the Midwest, it's a couple five-game road trips out west a year, and otherwise, it's two- and three-game road trips, but usually never more than that. But they're just coming off of a five-game road trip, and after Thanksgiving, we'll head out for seven straight games, which is a challenge, especially those with family. I was talking to Chris Duarte about this, and he was he agreed easily the toughest part was being away from his family, especially his young son, Chris Jr., who's like two and kind of models and mimics and does anything and everything his dad does and just wants to hang out with him and eat dinner with him and go to bed with him and swim with him and play basketball. That would be a tough part. Um, I, I can't relate with that, but I definitely recognize it and, and can understand that. But right now the team is relatively healthy. That's a good sign. Let's knock on wood somewhere. Um, let's hopefully see that continue so that we can see what this team can become. We're starting to learn more about this group. I'd say so far, Halliburton and Matherin have exceeded expectations, certainly have at least matched them, those two producing consistently. Then I think elsewhere, it's just kind of been different guys every single night. Jalen Smith goes off for 17 in a game. Miles Turner has a terrific game in Washington, 27, 10, and 5. Isaiah Jackson, first game in Brooklyn, finished with like 18 points, 10 rebounds, really solid double-double off the bench. Andrew Nemhard goes from not playing in the first game to playing 30 minutes in the second game and now using being used sparingly. But I think for the most part, when he's been in there, he's been a positive contributor. I like the fact that they have three pass-first point guards out there. And then Chris Duarte, admittedly a little bit of a slow start, not how he would have liked for the start to his season to go, but then he broke out of that a little bit. Not even a slump, but kind of found a rhythm and hit some shots Monday in a loss at Brooklyn, scoring 30, the best game of his NBA career. Then I also did want to single out Buddy Heald. He has been a consistent producer, shooting like 43% from the arc, scoring 20-plus points in the, over the last week and just being really steady, hitting you know an average of five threes per game. That's exactly what he needs to do, and that's what he so far has done this season, his first full season with the Pacers as a couple more years under contract. We still haven't seen Daniel Tice and guard Aaron Neesmith is back dealing with a foot injury, this time to his other foot, his right one. He's going to miss some time, but hopefully not more than a couple of weeks. It has now been one week uh, after it happened a week ago in Washington, D.C. Now, as for this episode, I think you'll really enjoy it because it's a different perspective. It's a national perspective with Jake Fisher, who started, like many do, on a local beat. and We really didn't know each other 
until this summer. We had DM for a year. And by the way, that's one of the big benefits of Twitter, of social media. Right now, there's so much negativity out there about it. At least my experience, the good far outweighs the bad. So I'm appreciative. And then at Summer League, and actually before Summer League in Vegas, we were together in Chicago for the draft lottery and the draft combine. We were one of, I want to say it was eight of us, locked away in the draft lottery room where they actually held the drawing. So that's where we really got to know each other well there is, you know, you're in there for two hours and you know the result and you don't have your phone. But uh, yeah, he covered the 76ers now with Yahoo Sports as a national writer. And on top of that, with the Pacers being in Brooklyn, you had Miles Turner on a podcast. And also in his latest piece, Jake talked with Tyrese Halliburton over the weekend in Brooklyn and then wrote about him being given the keys to the Pacers, being the face of the franchise. Before we get to that conversation, just a reminder to subscribe to FieldhouseFiles.com to read and support my work. Some stories are free, including my latest on Chris Duarte. Team also had hundreds of members of the armed forces, military members at practice, treated them to breakfast, signed autographs. Really cool. I touched on that as well in that story. That one's free, but most of my stuff you will have to pay for just $5 a month cost of a latte not very much anymore especially um but that's where you'll get daily coverage so i encourage you at minimum subscribe as a free subscriber to get basic coverage but i think you'll see in due time you'll want to elevate that and join the rest of the community hundreds who are paying each month to be a paid subscriber at fieldhouse files all right as promised i'm now joined by jake fisher senior nba reporter for now yahoo sports so Jake, first of all, congratulations on the new gig. And uh, secondly, it was great to finally meet you in person and have some good conversations this summer at Summer League. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the congrats. People need to stop congratulating me now. I feel like there's there's, there's a lot of pressure now on, on making all the congrats worthwhile. <laughs> so here's what I'll like, s- let me sneak in the back door of this new title. <laughs> but this is what I'll say, like, it, especially in media and sports media, it is so damn difficult. There's so much competition. Like, I think we all need to celebrate each other's little victories for that exact I reason. I appreciate that, man. I so, appreciate that. That's at least yeah. how I look at it. No, it's, it has, it has definitely felt like that. It definitely, I appreciate all the support from people in the, in the business and outside of it. And I, I am hoping nothing but uh, similar opportunities for other people. And I'm always happy to help others and give feedback on how to figure out some type of path in this <laughs> right? wild world that we live in. So yeah, man, no, it's all, it's all good things. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And yeah, we're all just trying to figure it out and try to navigate it and carve out our own little niche and, and whatever. And for me, that's been the Pacers for the last what, 10 years or so. And I had the pleasure of joining you uh, on your call-in podcast over the summer with talking Pacers for once, which is interesting because they do not get talked about much on the national conversation. And if they do, as we'll get into it, usually involves one of the power teams in the league. But I think just to start, because you are covering the league as a whole, I'm just curious what you make of kind of this first month of the season, just because there's very little basketball talk. It's Lakers troubles, Robert Sarver, Celtics, Udoka, Nets, who the Pacers just played a couple games in a row, Draymond, Josh Primo, um, Everything has been dominated by things away from the court. Yeah, it hasn't been a banner start to the season for the league, um, especially when you think about this time last year, there was kind of a pall cast over Media Day when Media Day turned into kind of a, a mission to seek out whether or, play, or not players were vaccinated, you know. 
Um, and I think the drama off the court in the league in terms of transactional stuff, in terms of the relationship fodder being that this is a, this is a business largely based off of who you know, in terms of front office people and coaches getting jobs, players wanting to play with certain players. And it's a small world. And when, just like the fact that Adam McKay and Will Ferrell, I believe, are like no longer friends after some thing, you know, some oversight, some overlook and a casting thing in the movie industry. Like that type of stuff, the stuff that ends up on page six and the New York Post, like that's all felt, that's all fun and good. But when it gets into the, the area that we've gotten to of late where there's stuff about sexual impropriety and, uh, you know, anti-Semitism and dismissing other people of other cultures and backgrounds, it's, it's not great, man, especially when you think about how the league likes to uphold itself as this, this moral high ground in the professional sports entertainment industry. It's tough. It, has, it hasn't been an awesome week. Is that it's fair to say what probably 90% of your phone calls, your texts, or central part of over the last couple of weeks? Yeah. I mean, my job is unfortunately to kind of drop everything at a point in time when a story is demanding to be covered and to have the truth be told. And we, I mean, look, the Spurs situation, the woman, forgive me for not knowing her name. I, I the, the lawsuit just came out or, she firmly identified herself and or identified herself and everything, but I'm still collecting stuff there. But like, she's a legend. San Antonio knew about the Primo stuff since January 22, so it's nine months now, or we're, we're in November. So it's ten months now, depending on when that actually hey. happened. And press releases, you know, the whole Steve Nash mutually parts ways from Brooklyn, like. Yes, from my reporting, was he burnt out and ready to leave? For sure, but he didn't want to get fired. Like the that job, that parting of ways becomes mutual when the employer says we want to get rid of it. I said, oh, okay, yeah, I think you're right. You know what I'm saying? So I think like the job is to work on behalf of the fans and readers to find out stuff that aren't necessarily supposed to be getting out there to educate them and, and, and reveal the full picture. So yeah, a lot of the phone calls have been trying to do that and, and they're not easy. They're not fun. <laughs> it's, it's way more fun to talk about trade scenarios and who's going to get down and Mitchell and stuff like that. And, and I'll even take it a step further. I, I love when talking about what say Donovan Mitchell has done now and what the Cavs could be and what the Celtics, how they are adapting with their new head coach. The ba- truly the basketball talk, which is very hard for us all, I-, I think, to get into, especially you guys on the national level, just considering so many different topics that you guys need to have a stranglehold over and, and try to cover for all of us and, and hold teams accountable, I think, more than anything. One thing that's cool, whereas I'm on the Pacer side, you got started with the 76ers, and that was, I don't know, five, six years ago on that 76ers beat, kind of overlapping with the process. And while the Pacers certainly aren't going to that level, and I'd probably argue that that's generally not a successful route, you overlapped during that process. So I'm curious, kind of, what were some of your takeaways 
throughout all of that? And, and what stuff during that time did you try to focus on covering as maybe the, the losses pile up? And I should mention, by the way, to the audience, you wrote a book all about this, Built to Lose, How the NBA's yes, Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. I can tell you, I bought a copy like a year and a half ago, but I also will admit it's kind of on the shelf right now with about 10 others I've yet <laughs> to get to. But I promise you I will eventually. It's all good, man. I appreciate the purchase. Um, yeah, you know, I got my start as an intern at Slam Magazine the summer of 2013 and covering that draft largely because I was a Sixers fan and growing up and this team that I had cared about at the time, um, they weren't reporting their draft workouts anymore. That, that was a, a very early theme of Sam Hinkie's tenure and that he wanted to have a veil of secrecy over what their front office and basketball operations were doing. So I was getting on the phone with agents trying to figure out which players were in those workouts. And that kind of signaled to other teams at a certain point that I was going to be able to tell them who was going to be in the Sixers workouts, which was not like a super, super important aspect of that draft because Philly had the 11th pick, but teams picking 12th and 13th and 14th and down the list were curious, you know, every, everything come draft time is a data point. And moving forward after that internship, I was at Liberty Ballers covering the Sixers for SB Nation for a couple of years, all throughout Hinkie's tenure. And it was the number one talk to your point about, you know, storylines commanding so much oxygen. I mean, the Sixers process years was the number one storyline in the NBA for three years. Mm -hmm. When we, I was at SB Nation, we had access to the data, the traffic data of all 30 team blogs. And then there's more with the draft and there's still a Seattle one. There was a WNBA blog at the time. And I know their coverage has grown a lot more in the W, but we were, the Liberty Ballers was pretty routinely at the top of the list in terms of traffic. And that wasn't, just because we had a lot of good writers, but it's because the storyline was what it was. And it was so bold and brazen the way they were going about doing it, of stacking such a roster that was doomed to fail. That's largely why the book is called Built to Lose, because the rosters were built to lose. The coaches and the players were certainly trying to win. All the veterans like, you know, Miles Turner were trying to play their way into getting traded to another team. So um, it really is an organizational strategy from up top and, I think from your standpoint, like you said, you don't know if it works. I think the whole book I wanted to look at because it is not easy to do. It is not easy to crash a plane and then rebuild the plane and get the plane back up in the air. It's very easy to crash the plane. Mm -hmm. Anyone can do it. Anyone can sit behind that wheel and just turn yourself into the woods and create a new episode of Lost. But <laughs> it's really, really hard to get back and the trials and tribulations that along that path there's so much luck involved there's all these inner personality or interpersonal uh things that you know could come up and there's a lot of money involved especially i mean the pacers are going to see this inevitably if they start to be good even if they don't be if, even if they don't start to be good eventually tyrese halliburton and chris duarte and ben mcmathrin and whoever they pick this year and isaiah jackson all these guys have to get paid at a certain point too and that that, that it, it's a lot easier said than done to get to identify these guys put them together make them fit have them enjoy each other's you know company and and working alongside one another and build a sustainable culture where you can win year after year after year and also still keep everybody happy monetarily it's, it, i mean we're seeing in phoenix right now with deandre and which i'm sure we'll talk about and cam johnson not getting his extension this year you go around it's it's not an easy path 
Yeah, and with those players, one of the things I think about, too, is you're, you're drafting not only talent but characteristics towards your end goal, right? And so with the Pacers, for example, they're really locked into to guys that love the game. They're not just talented at the game. The guys that are uber competitive, which we see with Benedict Matherin, like at the end of a game, they're down 17 in Chicago, and he steals the ball from his college teammate with like seven seconds to go score. Vucevic gets mad. He goes, hey, look, the game's not... Like, those are characteristics to the point of, you know, at some point it all comes to a head here of, you know, a team wants to have a higher draft pick. They also want to develop players with certain characteristics. So, yeah, there's so many challenges that go into it. On top of that, maybe it's a coaching staff or a coach trying to prove or or keep their longevity, I think, um, in the league. So I find that really interesting and I'm curious, going into this season, then, based on what we know and what the Pacers have made public and all that type of thing, what type of tasks do you expect to kind of have in front of them here for the next at least year, year and a half as they try to get through it? And then you start looking forward, thinking, like you said, even to contracts, to playing time. Do guys get unhappy with their roles, et cetera? I mean, the biggest thing at the end of the day, from my perspective, is you need to strike gold in terms of having the right player fall to you the right year at the right spot. You know, going to 2007, if Greg Oden's not in that draft class, the Portland Trailblazers are taking Kevin Durant, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, this this year's draft, we got a pretty clear, obvious one and two right now, according to everyone in the draft community, that Victor Wembanyama one and Scoot Henderson two, and the Thompson twins. Now, it seems like anecdotally people are saying one of the Thompson twins, I forget which one, forgive me, is a little bit better. So what if it's a three-person draft? And what if the Pacers finish with the fourth pick in the lottery? What if they get the number one pick and get Victor Wembanyama, and all of a sudden you're pairing Tyrese Halliburton in a seven-foot-three combination of Giannis Antetokounmpo, Dirk Nowitzki, and Rudy Gobert? You know what I mean? Yeah. So that – was part of why Sam Hinkie did this so brazenly and why the Thunder are doing it so brazenly in that they recognize the number of chances that you need in order to strike gold once. I mean, you and I are in the lottery room this, this May in Chicago. That's right, where, yeah. Where Sam Presti got the number two pick, which they were ultimately able to use to take a Chet Holmgren. But – the way the lottery works, it's not like it happens on TV. They do they draw for one, they draw for two, they draw for three, they, they draw for four, and then everyone else falls in line. And after he got that second pick, I remember being struck by the fact that Pressy was staring forward. He was locked in. They still had another chance of getting a, a, a pick. I think it ended up being 12th after the lottery concluded, which they had to move up to get Deang with, with the Knicks at 11, but that's a whole other side tangent. But that 12th pick for a second had a chance of being three or being four. And you need those chances to try to get up there to take a swing because you might get Tyrese Albert and Bennett Mathard in and Chris Duarte, who all turned out good, but then you could also be like Philadelphia and several other teams where in between the Joel Embiid and the Ben Simmons, who was a you know multi-time all-star in Philly that was able to get them, James Harden. Like there are there are the Nerls, the Wells and the Julio Okafors and the Michael Carter Williams and so on and so forth. So um that is the thought as to why you take more chances because if you just do it once and, and especially in a draft like this where their riches are so obvious but you miss out it can be a deterrent or, or something that 
doesn't exactly springboard you forward like you were hoping for, and you have to figure out other ways to get back to the top. And to that point, those inside the Pacers organization, that Pacers family, know about that from the WNBA side. Since Tamika Ketchings retired, they'd have the worst record in professional sports. Still have not had the top overall draft pick. They've selected like third, fourth, second, third. They're waiting for that coveted spot because so many times it might be that one game-changer, franchise-changing talent. And so, Pacer fans, that's why you're seeing, at least going into this upcoming draft, if things fall ways they should, Pacers will have three swings at it, potentially, or you package them up. But you got Cleveland's pick. You got Boston's pick for the chance to swing at it. And to your point, too, of uh, you know Victor and Scoot and those two, Pacers had, I don't know if this was no- the norm for teams. I know the Pacers had about a dozen executives and scouts combined out in Las Vegas for those couple of games. Like, they've been all in. They've been tracking this draft class the next couple for several years here. Before I move on from the, the, that process, I'm curious, because TJ McConnell was there, did yeah. you, do you have any great stories or, or something notable that stands out to you in your interactions with him? Because, number one, there's not a guy in the league I've met that doesn't like him, whether it's a coach, a player, an official. And also, he just he has uh, that unique trait to just be so likable, so funny and connect with everyone. Yeah, no, I really like TJ. I saw him here Monday night when that Nets game you were referring to earlier, went to the locker room. I've grown my hair out since the pandemic started. It's my (laughs) first time finally getting back in locker rooms. Um, And I've known TJ over the years, especially through working on the book. And um, he was like, man, you got to cut your fucking hair. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds exactly like it. I remember uh, Nick Staskis, who became very, very close with TJ uh, in their Philly time, Mm -hmm. telling me that in that first training camp, which I believe was was 2015, the 15-16 year, um, that TJ going undrafted, not exactly the most athletic player in the NBA ecosystem, was – really unsure of his spot on the team to the point where he kept asking Nick Stauskas after every practice, like, do you think I'm going to make the team? Do you think I'm going to make the team? What do you think? Do you think I'm in a more solid spot today compared to yesterday? Like, he really is a guy who maybe it's waned off a bit now because he's become a true, true veteran. He's made quite a bit of money. I'm happy for him. Um, but for at least the first couple of years of his career before Indy came and paid him, um, he really conducted himself like he was on the edge of being out and really didn't take a day for granted and worked his ass off. So yeah, big fan of TJ McConnell. Yeah, he's great. I think he felt that way probably until that, that last contract that he's currently on with the Pacers. who got a four year deal. And because when he signed originally with the Pacers, he said he had very few options. And to that point, I think the last year was non-guaranteed or a partial guarantee. Sixers didn't really make an offer, go after him, which is, I believe has proven to be a mistake there, but uh, now he's making good yeah. money and he's contributing in so many ways we see on the court. But I can tell you, even after practice today, countless guys mentioned the fact of how he challenged them, how he leads them, how he's the ultimate teammate. You wrote on Yahoo Sports here this week after Tyrese Pacers were in Brooklyn about Tyrese Halliburton and uh, how we're seeing him not just be the face of the team, but the team is being all in on him. I mean, whether you're talking about free agents discussions, whether you're talking about what it takes to start the season or team meetings, he is involved very much so in all those conversations. Maybe what did you learn and what did you gather through your reporting? Um, I learned the Pacers didn't necessarily want people to know that he was involved in that meeting. (laughs) Um, Oh, they didn't. That's interesting. 
Um, and you're obviously I mean, referring to DeAndre Ayton meeting, but I mean, yeah, as it was told to me too, he once he figured out they could be in on Ayton, then he he told them, hey, let's go get him, and then and I'll yeah, do whatever. Yeah. yeah, no, I think. Look, he's. We were just talking about Victor Wembanyama when I went to Vegas for the Wembanyama week against G League Ignite, and excuse me if that car horn outside is being picked up. <laughs> is that New um, York? <laughs> I'm, I'm moving away from the window. Yeah, um, you're good. <clears throat> excuse me. The thing I was most concerned, or not concerned, the thing I was most taken by with Wembanyama was not just him being as advertised on the court, but I was blown away by the person and the and the mind and the thoughtfulness that he he brings to his craft. And I think Giannis has shown that in spades. Um, Tyrese has between the ears, at least, and I believe in his heart, he's the type of guy you want to build a team around. And he, his game backs it up. He's a connector. He's a pass-first player. He definitely seems to, to relish when his teammates are doing well, especially when he's playing a factor in their success. If he can continue to show the signs that he's shown already and developed as he has developed as a player, he is absolutely going to be a top-tier player on, on a championship-caliber team. I, I, I really do believe that. I know the Pacers believe that. Um, but – from my conversations around the organization, it sounds like they also recognize that he's going to need a lot of help and they're trying to add to this roster in ways that are complimentary to him um, and have him a part of it from day one so that this guy who's got this smile and this energy around him is a main fabric of the culture and maybe there can be some extensions of him throughout the rest of, the, of this, uh, this franchise moving forward. And one of the biggest challenges you I would foresee in all this is, is keeping his happiness, having a successful team. Like he's one of those guys, for example, hates to lose, is always on the court, those sort of things. So you can't allow this to compound to a three-year process You know, with it moving forward. He's just 22, but you're right. One of the most impressive things I think about him is him understanding his role off the court, how he's kind of the team spokesman how he's willing to stick up for teammates, all those different characteristics for a guy so young who hasn't even experienced the playoffs, none of that um, just yet. The big conversation piece nationally, of course, is what are the Lakers? What are Russell Westbrook and all of them doing? And that directly relates to this Pacers team because, of course, the obvious potential trade of Miles Turner and Buddy Heald. I've never really understood it. That's why I actually haven't written about it. It's probably bad for analytics and stuff because it would probably do well but I've just never understood it ever ever since uh, I think going back from exit interviews when it first kind of was first mentioned here um, tell me if I'm off Jake here but for one I feel like you could go out and probably get a first round pick separately perhaps for both of those eventually also if you're a small market why would you really want to look to help the Lakers and third remember the Lakers were fined for tampering with Paul George so many years ago I don't know Unless something was added to the mix, I'm not sure I would do that. Yeah, I I mean, Miles Turner's market value to me is very similar to Jeremy Grant's a year ago in that his was similar to Aaron Gordon's before him where he was on an expiring deal and or a deal that's going to expire sometime soon. And he's probably not an all-star, but very, very, very close and really could be a missing piece type player on a team. You know, if it was someone like Charlotte, who's been laughing a center pretty much 
uh, you know, forever, <laughs> yep. especially, and especially in the Flamilla Ball uh, tenure. And they're, they're definitely a team that's checked in on Miles and has had opportunities to go get him and have it. Um, the Patriots want two first-round picks for him. So to take roughly that value and Russell Westbrook's ex- expiring contract and give up Buddy Heald seems like something that is below uh, what the Pacers – will ultimately want but at the same time like just because that's what their market value should be like the nets didn't get an offer that made them want to part with kevin durant this summer if they did if there was really something that knocked their socks off if they got scotty barnes and pascal siakam and Mm -hmm. something else from toronto and picks they probably would have done it so at the end of the day that might end up being what the pacers biggest um offer is especially with miles so far signaling that he wants to test free agency so if you're trading for him and don't necessarily have assurances he's going to be sticking around that could be damaging to his trade market and coming out and talking on a podcast about your pretty obvious interest in going to the lakers that would i think further dull a team's spirit that he wouldn't just want and have an eye of going to that team in free agency if they're open to taking him on. So I don't know what the market will be come February, but we we kind of have a linchpin a little bit as to where things can pivot and shift, being that, in theory, that deal is somewhat on the table and has been discussed in some capacity. So that, that's going to be the obvious benchmark to start any conversation about trading for either of those two guys. Yeah, that podcast was just very weird, bizarre. Um, so many touch points and, and talking points, but to I thought it was bizarre kind of to start off with that awkwardness. Maybe it was just trying to break some tension or whatever, but by no accident, I mean, that obviously took place when the team's in New York and Miles for years has been wanting, seeking more national attention for himself, for the team, and for him specifically as it relates to league awards. That's why he doesn't believe he's being considered for defensive player of the year, you know, first, second team, all defense, et cetera. Um, just because people, frankly, don't watch them. To use the great quote from Roy Hibbert to Tom Haberstroh several years ago, I guess that'd probably be a decade ago now that I think about it. But nonetheless, I, I'm not expecting anything to happen really on that front or anything too much significantly here for like another month, right? Because in general, that stuff doesn't happen to around the holidays till New Year's or so when we're 25 games in. Teams figure out what their teams have. I mean, Brooklyn's now clearly the obvious exception, firing a coach, but I don't think anything the Nets are doing right now is the norm. No. Yeah, typically December 15th when a lot of these free agent contracts become tradable um, is is a big trigger date for these conversations to get spoken about again. Um, And deadlines help, you know, pressure helps create diamonds, right? So... Um, or maybe pressure makes diamonds is the expression. Maybe you need pressure to make diamonds, not just help it, right? So a lot of these talks will definitely come around there and come around that 2025 game sample size, like you mentioned, where, I mean, teams spent all offseason working on these things and thinking, by no means do most teams think their roster is complete on opening night, but you don't think you got a ton of work ahead. So there's sample size things here. You know, all these teams have started three and four, four and three, three and five, like, if that stretch happened in January, they wouldn't, the sky wouldn't be falling. So you're hoping to see a normalized sample of data and figure out what you actually have ahead of you before you make any drastic changes and 
But I, I do think we're going to see a ton of movement during the season. That's just an educated guess at this point. But yeah. there are so many teams who think they should be in the playoffs, who have mandates to make the playoffs, who should be taking a step forward, should be competing for a title. That won't be because, like, 24 teams can't make the playoffs. Even now in the play-in tournament, there's only 20 teams that um, that get into the actual overall postseason. So four of those are going to be on the outs, and a lot of them, a lot more than four, are going to be worried about their path to get there, which I think will stem a lot of activity. And I was just talking to an agent today who was saying, you know, the free agent market isn't exactly loaded with all-star after all-star after all-star. So we could see some teams make some moves in season, especially ahead of the deadline, to get ahead of, you know, where they want to be next year because there isn't such a, a, a rich class and a lot and, – a lot of the top tier free agents seem to be guys who would be pretty quick, like a Chris Middleton, who would be pretty quick to resign in the situation he's at. So, yeah, I'm prepared for a lot of movement between now and February 8th or whatever the deadline is. And I think on the even on the bottom teams, you'll have a couple teams probably feel that urgency to do something to be relevant, to maybe get into the play-in tournament. And then conversely, you'll have teams go, hey, look, we just don't have it promise you 30 minutes there was one last thing I wanted to get in and that of course was this offseason with the Pacers and doing something they just don't do and that's led by Herb Simon the the longest tenured owner in the league and that's going after another team's players DeAndre Ayton was a restricted free agent how the Suns and their relationship is all very uh probably an hour-long conversation as is but I thought it was really interesting how the Pacers went after DeAndre Ayton. They they pursued him, met with him at least a couple of times, and got all, him to ultimately sign a restricted offer sheet. Of course, the Suns matched that right away. But what do you remember from your reporting there and, and maybe the, the league-wide surprise or suspense, I guess, on what went down there because no one else seemingly made an offer? No, I think Detroit going and getting Jalen Duran. Uh, or Duran, I believe is the correct pronunciation, um, on draft night. It's changed a lot of their salary structure, being that they took on Kemba Walker and Nerlens Noel and Alex Burks, but it also um, eliminated their, their their wishes of finding a potential young big man to pair with Jaden Ivey and Kate Cunningham. So that was definitely a landing spot that people believed people around the situation with, you know, who were involved definitely believe would have happened if the trade for Jalen Duran didn't occur. So that was off the board. I think Toronto definitely had interest, but never actually materialized. Um, and after that, yeah, it, it really did seem like the, the Pacers were the only real potential landing spot for him. And Phoenix was not going to extend him an offer. They were going to, I mean, they clearly were going to match all along, just like they said they would. No one believed them, but they did. So that was probably my biggest takeaway. No one in the league believed that Phoenix was going to just match like that. They didn't think they'd want, they'd want to pay him. They thought they would um, they would kind of hold that over him to get things back in return. And also, I mean, they clearly thought that his restricted free agency and the potential to sign and trade him was going to be enough to get, to get Kevin Ray from Brooklyn. I think when they found out it wasn't um, – that's when things started to get wonky and the Pacers really emerged. And behind the scenes, the other interesting point, of course, was the fact that Miles Turner's agent was the same <laughs> was the same as uh, DeAndre Ayton, and the secondary agent on Ayton is the same as Benedict Matherin here. And I even was told Pacers were looking into trying to get Ayton even possibly a, 
as late as the uh, trade deadline last year, but for obvious reasons, the Suns wanted to kind of play it out. But that was the first time I had heard Aiton. Hey, keep an eye on him for Indiana. There might be legs to that. Maybe not now, but certainly this summer. Yeah, no, I remember that too. I remember there was talk about a Sabonis for Aiton thing that never materialized, obviously. But Aiton and Indy absolutely popped up for the first time for me around the deadline last year. Yeah. And then ultimately Pacers going after it didn't work. Pacers did have to eat some money of contracts they waived. But it's Kevin Pritchard telling me, hey, it's a new era. With Over the last couple of years, we've had to kind of reset and think about the way we go about things and do things differently. And so far that has been true. Um, was still quite surprised that they did that. Uh, Jake, anything else you'd like to add to the conversation here? I appreciate you jumping on here and uh, joining this Pacers podcast. No worries, man. Thanks for having me. Keep it tuned to Yahoo Sports and the NBA page. A lot of good stuff happening from our whole team and my show on calling. Uh, I go twice a week. I'll probably go tomorrow, Friday. I have to figure out the guest, but that's all I got, man. Thanks again. Appreciate it, and maybe we can get you a trip here to Indianapolis here eventually. So thanks we'll again, man. We'll figure something out. We'll figure something out. Take care, man. 